0: of you who are uh, students and particularly in grade school and high school I want to ask what is the most that you have ever number of items that you have ever put on your Christmas wish list most number Isaac Fifty-five-zero. all right all right and of that like maybe what two you got two or three of them two this year okay so sh- your theory is shoot high and then you know Okay, all right, all right. So we're shooting for a 10% ratio on Isaac's list. All right. So Ben, what's the most highest number of things you've ever put on a Christmas list? He doesn't make one. Oh, very philosophical. Oh, all right, all right. Anybody else? Any other students? All the parents are like, don't ask my kid. They'll sound greedy. It'll make me look really bad. (laughs) Well, um, you know, it's an interesting question to kind of play around with. One of our our friends, uh, Don, was a postie, and so they um, get to see all of the letters that come through uh, that go to Santa. he said, some of these letters have like 400 items on them uh, for kids is what they're asking for for Christmas in a given year. And it got me thinking a little bit about the fact, what if that kid with the list of 400... What if they actually got everything they ever wanted on that list? Like, what would that look like? What would it? What would their experience of, of that be? I don't know. Kids that ask probably for 400 things on their list probably have never seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life and don't understand that somehow you can get everything that you want in your life and still not be happy and fulfilled and satisfied. And so this morning we're going to ask the question uh, from the scriptures in our in our series. What if we got what it was that we wanted, but then God asked you to give it up? What if the deepest desires or achievements of your heart, the highest priorities of your life were realized, and then God said to you, do you know what? I have a different plan for you. And so we're going to look at a text in the Old Testament where God did just that uh, with an individual and ask us to consider what our response might be. Well, we're into an Advent series uh, early this year. And uh, it's just like kind of shopping. The earlier you get it done, the less uh, crowded it is at the end of the Christmas season. So our series leading into Advent this year is called Counterfeit Gods. And we started it last week. And the premise of this teaching series is that as individuals and as, uh, as families and even as church communities, we have an incredible propensity to take things that are good and turn them into ultimate things we have an incredible ability to take good things and turn them into ultimate things priorities that trump all else including God himself and the Bible would use a particular word to identify that danger and the word is idolatry and so we looked at that a little bit this last week that idolatry is anything that captures our hearts our imaginations our wallets our priorities our time and our allegiance at that kind of a level And in his excellent book on the subject, theologian and pastor Tim Keller notes this, that every human being must live for something. Something has got to capture our hearts, our imaginations, and our most fundamental allegiance and hope. But the Bible tells us that without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, that object of our affections and our lives and the, the direction which we head our lives in will never be God himself. If we look to the created to give us meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and it will break our hearts. A less popular, well, maybe a more popular theologian, Bob Dylan said, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. Just both of those identify the fact that we have to have a controlling influence in our lives. It's, we're wired that way as human beings. And in this series, we want to ask the question, what is the controlling influences in our hearts? What are those things to which we give ourselves fully? And so Pastor Keith gave a great primer last week, and over the next six weeks, we're going to look at a whole variety of topics and various biblical narratives to ask the question, how might this particular thing become potentially an idol in our culture and maybe in my life? And if it is... What should I do about it? And so as we look at our text this morning, uh, we're going to, I want you to get the picture in your mind of a pendulum clock. Growing up in our house, uh, we had a pendulum clock. It was on the mantle. It got all nicely decorated for Christmas. And a pendulum clock, as you know, just moves back, forward, back, and forward. And a pendulum swing, in many ways, has become a bit emblematic of some major aspects of modern life. Take for example, uh, a sports team. Let's pretend it's a hockey team. Let's pretend they win a major championship and then many of their best players get traded away or they hit their salary cap in the off season and they have to rebuild for the next season. And somehow still mystically, they manage to come to town and defeat our hockey team seven to one. I'm not quite sure how that happens. So that might be a little bit of a bad example of a pendulum swing, but oftentimes a team will be great one year and then they got to trade away their best players. And so they swing way back over on the other side of the experience uh, the following year. Okay, so let's talk about maybe eating habits in the month of December. Some of us go a little crazy in the month of December, and we sort of get out of the moderate range, and we sort of swing over to one side of the pendulum. So what happens then is in January, we think to ourselves, "Uh uh-oh, went too far over on the one side of the pendulum, and so we swing it way back over, on the other side of the pendulum. And so like January 1st, if you go in, the first books you see in chapters are like all the diet books are all front and center. And all the diet meetings are like filled with brand new people coming into their regime and filled to capacity in January 1st. Because the pendulum gets pushed from one extreme in the month of December to the other extreme. They even have a name for this. This is like yo-yo dieting. And the pendulum principle is true in so many areas of our lives. It's true in the area of politics. Think about uh, the recent midterm elections, or really any swath, frankly, of political history here in B.C. We go from one extreme way over to the other extreme in this swing in politics and in culture. Particularly, we do this in theology as well, particular emphases, get overemphasized, and then we think, well, we should correct that, and so we swing way back over into another emphasis, And it's very difficult and challenging in all of these areas of our lives to try and figure out where would the pendulum stop in the middle. Most often, we're living in one of those areas of extremes. So take another example, our definition of uh, a fulfilled And uh, let's use the word successful, might not be the best word, a successful male in our culture. Think back over the last 85, 90 years to how that definition has shifted and changed and what the influences are, have been in the different generations. So if you're my age, your grandparents are in the generation known as the builders. And the builders generation, they like to use the term and I argue with my grandparents about this. The greatest generation in the history of the world. They uh, they really feel that's an apt description for them. Uh, so, anyways, whether or not they like that label or not, they the the definition of their uh, exploits and success was doing something on behalf of the greater good, our culture. These are people who fought in two world wars. These are people who built institutions in our society. A lot of the institutions that we have in Canadian culture now were built two generations ago by these individuals who thought we want something larger and and we want to contribute our lives for the greater good. This is broadly speaking, of course. So then the next generation comes along and they redefine the cultural landscape And they redefine what that looks like in their eyes in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And the highest values become things like self-fulfillment and self-actualization. And this leads to seeing things like personal fulfillment in my job and in my role as something that would be the highest thing that I could attain and the most prized aspects of particularly the male psyche. But this did something to families inadvertently or advertently. And this led to when we see personal fulfillment as our greatest goal, and the almighty dollar as being something of the prized possession. For some of you growing up, this definition of a, of a man meant that you were a good provider or that your parents were or your dad was a good provider, and that was equated with success or that was what was the highest value that was esteemed at that point in time. And the law of unintended consequences kicks in, and you begin to experience an entire generation who grows up with a dedication to work over family. And some of you, if you're in my age category, you might not remember your father's being at a single Christmas musical that you were ever in or very present, frankly, in your lives growing up. So then the next generation comes along, and we look at this landscape littered with some of the unintended consequences of that definition of success, and we begin to push the pendulum over even further on the other side of the equation. And we say, well, we don't know necessarily what we want, but we don't want that, whatever that was. And so the pendulum begins to swing back in this. So we think to ourselves, well, if my dad wasn't at any of my games, I'm gonna be at every single game ever that my kid ever plays. And we say things like, well, if my dad never said good job to me, then I'm going to tell my kids, I'm going to give them all kinds of praise all the time, even if, frankly, they're very mediocre and don't actually deserve it in the particular environment that they're in. Um, And over time, without realizing it, the principle of the pendulum has caught up with us. But the problem is, when you want to swing something back in a corrective, just like in so many of those other areas, sometimes you swing it too far back in the other direction, And so you tend to vastly overcompensate. But the challenge is that overcompensation for past wrongs, excesses, or absences does not ever, ever, ever create justice, balance, or fulfillment in our lives. It would be wonderful if we could, as the pendulum comes back through, just mystically stop it in the middle and achieve some level of health and balance. But quite often... When the pendulum begins to swing, it begins to swing over in the other direction because we want to try and experience something different, but it doesn't overcompensate, it doesn't compensate for past wrong successes or absences. And so in this instance, speaking particularly um, for young moms and, and dads, as we push the pendulum back in the opposite direction, many of us have not found or experienced balance in this area of our lives. And family, because we haven't necessarily maybe seen it modeled for us in a healthy way, has become a consuming priority to try and figure out what that looks like. And for those of us who are married and have kids, our culture, by and large, has idolized children and families to the point where parents have begun to organize their entire world around them. Family time trumps anything else. Family time trumps a personal encounter with God and his word. Kids schedules trump or sport, trumps time with the gathered community of faith. All of our surplus financial resources are directed towards our children in a way that has not been true historically of any generation ever. And so we can't be generous to the poor, even if we really wanted to. Our credit cards are maxed out. And car loans eat up a huge portion of our budgets because we need to have the brand new minivan to transport the kids in. And it goes on and on and on. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not devaluing family in any way. Increasing the value that we place on relationships is a good thing. But what I am saying is that in our culture, and some of us in this room, have taken a good thing family, and relationships, and we've turned it into an ultimate thing. We've made priorities that have gotten hijacked by a new definition of family to the point that one of the gods of contemporary suburban culture is the elevation of the family to the place of highest prominence at the expense of all else. And it's gotten so bad that my pastoral heart says that we need to take a Sunday and name it for what it is, and that is, whether you like it or not, we would use the term idolatry because family has become the new God or a new God in our culture and in our society. And the problem is that it sounds so good. We tell ourselves, well, it's important that we have family time together. But the long-term prognosis of making our families into a God is very ugly. And so we need to look at some of the consequences of what that might look like and how we might ask the question of what it means for us in our world and in our culture today. So I want us to look at the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 and how God asked him to give up all he ever wanted in his life which was family and particularly a son because family for Abraham had become his new God. So turn to Genesis 22 uh, with me in your Bibles and we'll pray together. Say, God, we want to open our hearts uh, to you this morning. We want to invite you by your spirit to speak to each and every one of us this morning. We want to ask you to just put your finger on our lives. If there are areas of challenge that you need to bring To us this morning, we pray that we would hear and receive them. If there are things that you want to commend us for, we pray that we would also receive those. And God, we pray that as we look into your word this morning, your word is truth, it's our guide for life. And we pray that you would use it to teach us and show us things in our life. Hold it up as a mirror to us, Father, that we could see ourselves and that we could see you more clearly in what it is that you're calling us to do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, the story of Abraham as one of the uh, main characters, really early on in the Old Testament, uh, begins much earlier than Genesis chapter 22. It begins actually back in Genesis chapter 11 and chapter 12. And the story of Abraham begins with God appearing to Abraham and making him a promise, an incredible promise. That talks about, Abraham, if you will leave your family and your country of origin and you will follow me and walk in obedience to me, then I will make you a great nation. And amongst other things, God says to him, I will give you a son. Now, at this point in his life, Abraham is about 75 years old. And so at the time, God promising this to Abraham is no small miracle. But Abraham believes God and says, all right, I may be 75, my wife might be 65, but I believe you, God, that this is a possibility. And we looked at this narrative from Sarah's perspective uh, in our summer teaching series uh, this year here at Jericho Ridge, and so I won't dwell there. I'll simply remind us of the fact that it took a long time for God's promise to Abraham to actually come to fulfillment. It actually took 25 years and a whole set of life experiences. Tim Keller in his book puts it this way, the years of agonizing waiting had taken their toll as any couple struggling with infertility can attest. The nearly endless days of waiting for God to fulfill his promise refined Abraham's faith, which was critically important. However, the years of infertility also had another effect. No man had ever longed for a son, maybe more than Abraham because he had given up everything in his life to wait for this. For 25 years, he waits for God's promise to be fulfilled. And finally, at the age of 100, God comes to him and Sarah conceives. And I can picture Abraham as she goes through her first trimester, just doting over her in every way. And everyone holds their breath. For nine months, and finally it happens, the child of the promise arrives. And Abraham can say to everybody who might have asked him, see, I wasn't crazy. God promised me this. I remained faithful to God. God was faithful to me and faithful to his word. And here he is, the son that God promised me. And Abraham's heart is fulfilled. Or is it? Read with me in Genesis chapter 22, uh, verse 1 where the text says this. Sometime later, after Isaac has been born and after Isaac has grown a little bit, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah, Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Hold on. What did God just ask Abraham to do? This, why would God ask this of Abraham? God has waited, Abraham has waited 25 years for him to fulfill this promise. God has said, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation And then God comes to him a few years later and says, yeah, by the way, the son that you waited 25 years for, I'm going to take him away. Uh, What I need you to do is I need you to take him out into the mountains in the wilderness, a little father-son camping trip, and I need you to come back but not him. Why would God ask Abraham to do this? So we look at this. There's some clues in the text that this is for Abraham The ultimate test. Because Isaac has now become everything to Abraham, as God's call to Abraham makes clear. God doesn't just refer to the boy simply as Isaac, but he says, Your son, your only son, the son whom you love so much. And the problem that God identifies in Abraham's life is that Abraham has taken a good thing, his son, that God has gifted to him. And he has made him into the ultimate thing in his life. Over time, Abraham's affections have shifted. And his affection for his son has become adoration. Abraham has taken this good gift from God and has elevated it to the place where Isaac is everything in Abraham's life. He has even taken the place that God used to hold in Abraham's life. And in this, we learn that Abraham has made a fundamental error, which many of us also fall into in our walk with God. Through that 25 years of waiting on God, to God, for God to fulfill his promise, Abraham still has not learned that. He is to wait on God and know God for who God is, not for what God can do for him. Abraham is still seeking God's hand, what he can get from God as opposed to God's face in authentic relationship with him. Abraham in that 25-year period of testing still has not learned that God and God alone is the one and the object of Abraham's trust. He's still seeking God's hand, what he can get, and not God's face. Authentic relationship. And over time, then, the unintended consequence is that he shifted his affection from God onto his son, Isaac. And Isaac has replaced God in Abraham's life as the organizing principle of his life and his chief affection. But again... Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that loving your son, whom you've waited for for 25 years, is wrong. That's not what God is saying to Abraham by asking this of him. God is not saying that you cannot love your son, but that you must not take a loved one and turn them into a counterfeit God. Whenever you do this, you will smother them. If you do this as a parent and place all of your hopes and your dreams and your identity and your aspirations in your life into your children, your identity becomes so tied to theirs that whatever happens to them wounds you so deeply that you cannot recover from it. If they get into trouble at school, you, your first thought is, I'm a failure as a person, When they choose a different path than that which you've chosen for their lives, you feel hopelessly crushed and abandoned. When you put your children in the place of God, it creates an idolatrous love that smothers your children and strangles that relationship. And so God asks Abraham to give up that which is most precious to him, to sacrifice all that he has ever wanted. Let's continue reading in the story. I'll be reading from Genesis 22, 3 to 8. It won't come up on the side screen, so just follow along with me in your Bibles if you need one. Uh, Tamara's got a Bible for you there at the Welcome Center. So in verse 3, it says this, the next morning, Abraham gets up early. He saddled his donkey, takes two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac, chops wood for a fire for the burnt offering, and he sets out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day in their journey, Abraham looks up and sees the place in the distance. I don't know about you, but if I'm Abraham and I know that this is what God has asked me to do, I would have preferred he chose a closer location. Because three days of travel, of knowing this is going to be what it is that God has asked of me in this place, in this point of my journey, would just be eating me inside as a father. And so he looks up and he sees the place in the distance in verse 5. He says, stay here with the donkeys, Abraham tells his servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. We will worship there and then we will come right back. And so Abraham placed the wood for the offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and carried the knife. And the two of them walked on together a little further. And Isaac turned to Abraham and asked him a good question. He says, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and we have the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? Abraham says to him, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered and they both walked on together. There's so much in the backstory to this request that we only have a time this morning to mine a small portion of it. That's why your Momentum journal is designed to help you understand and go deeper in some of the realities outside of the context of Sunday morning. And so if you want to pick one of those up, that's free of charge for you. Tamara has some there at the Welcome Center for you. And you'll start in Genesis 12 and kind of begin to read through and understand a little bit more of God's dealings with Abraham and how Uh, This has brought him to this place in his life. But one of the challenges of this story for us as contemporary readers is we look at this and think to ourselves, how barbaric. How could God ask a person to sacrifice their only child? Does this mean, and some readers would extrapolate from the text and say, does this mean that God... Uh, doing cruel or violent things is fine so long as you believe that it's God's will for you to do so. Nothing could be further from the truth. We see in the text that Abraham didn't consider this to be an irrational request, an irrational command. And we get hints in the text of Abraham's journey and how he understood what it was that God had asked of him and the difficulty that this posed to him, that three-day journey, but also the rebirth of Abraham's faith in God. So what do we understand and see in Abraham's response? One of the things that we see is that Abraham was not exercising either a barbaric blind obedience to God's command. He wasn't exercising what we might in contemporary society refer to as blind faith but he was exercising a vigorous and grateful faith in God. We get a clue of this in verse 5 of chapter 22, where Abraham says to the servants, we will worship and we will come back. Somehow, Abraham wasn't sure what was going to happen, but he anticipated somehow that God might meet them in that place and might provide in his graciousness as a gracious God for Abraham that somehow Isaac might return with them. We will worship and we will return. Abraham believes in God's gracious provision because he knows this to be true of God time and time and time again in his experiences with God to date. But Abraham also believes in the justice of God's provision request. And the biblical narrative is expounded for us. Isaac understands that it, what a sacrifice is. And you have to read further on in the scriptures to see and understand their worldview and what it was that Abraham and Isaac understood in terms of sacrifice. Because the Bible repeatedly states that sacrifice, because of sin, the lives of firstborn were automatically forfeit. But God, by his graciousness, put in place a strategy that the firstborn could be redeemed. Look at texts like Exodus 22, verse 29, or Exodus chapter 34, verse 20. Because in the ancient world, the firstborn son in particular, and some cultures still have this, held all of the hopes and the dreams of the family together in one place. And so God was saying in the most vivid way possible to Abraham and to those cultures that in every way, every family on earth owed a debt to eternal justice, the debt of sin. And that debt must be repaid. And so God gave the Israelites and Abraham a, a way in which a mechanism in which that debt could be replayed or repaid. He gave them the option for sacrifice so that they understood as a firstborn son, this animal is being sacrificed in my stead, in my place. I deserve that, but God has graciously provided an alternate. And you read through the whole of the Old Testament to understand how it is that God came to set that up with the children of Israel for redemption in the Old Testament context. And so Abraham understands this. And he understands and is faced with this now ultimate question that God is a God who is holy. And therefore, my sin, Abraham would think, demands that Isaac's life be forfeit. But God is also a God of grace. And he has said that he wants to bless the world through Isaac. And so, how could God be holy? And how could God both also be just and graciously fulfill his promise of salvation? Abraham doesn't know. He doesn't have an answer, but he trusts and goes in obedience, in simple obedience to what it is that God has invited him to do. And our narrative continues in chapter 22, verse 9 when they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham did everything that the Old Testament sacrificial system required. He built an altar, he arranged the wood on it, and then he actually tied his son Isaac, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven Abraham, Abraham, and yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Don't hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your own son, your only son. And then Abraham looked up. And saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named the place Yahweh Hirah, or Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And to this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The Lord will provide. It's an amazing conclusion to a tense and dramatic scene. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what is this narrative all about? What is it trying to communicate to us? Well, for every idol that our hearts can latch onto, the Bible puts forward a narrative that explains how it works itself into our hearts and how we can work it out of our hearts. And so the narrative here explains in some ways the implications and application when we do what Abraham did, and that is when we get to the place where we have put family or our children as God in our lives. And one of the things that Abraham's story clearly shows us is how easy it is for the best things in the world to become the most dangerous things because they can so quickly and so easily become idols in our hearts. The best things in the world can be the most dangerous things for us because they can so quickly and easily become idols. Sometimes... When we get everything we've ever wanted, it can be the worst thing in the world for us. And it can destroy us. Was Abraham's desire to be a father wrong? No. But over time, he had turned this desire and subsequently the family that God had given him, particularly his son, into an idol. He had gotten all that he'd ever wanted. And it could have ruined his life. And so the sobering question for us to think about is, how would we know if this was happening to us? How would we know that we were taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing? How would I know if I was making a similar mistake? Which is the definition of idolatry. So I'd like to propose a two-part test for us this morning. And the first part of the test is the question of attachment. The question of attachment. And the question to ask ourselves here is, can I live without it? Whatever that particular thing is in your life. Can I live without it and be content or be happy? And it doesn't matter what it is in your life. It could be living in a house instead of in a basement suite. It could be a child or grandchildren. It could be a fulfilling job in the area of your education. It could be what you want to be when you grow up. It could be a certain level of increased money in the bank every month. It could be as small as a particular item that you want somebody to give you this Christmas. We can become un. Uh, we can become attached in unhealthy ways to things. And the unintended consequence for us is that when we don't get that for whatever reason, we become crushed and incapable of being content. The Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, I have learned in whatever circumstance I find myself to be content with lots, with little with things that I desire deeply, when they're realized, when they're unrealized. And so it's a clue for us that something is becoming a counterfeit God or is beginning to take over unnecessary real estate in our lives when we cannot answer the question, could I live without this, whatever it is, and be content? That might be a clue that something's becoming a counterfeit God, just like Isaac was becoming for Abraham. Well, some of us would look at that and say, all right, Brad, well, that's a little bit extreme, don't you think? Uh, I mean, I could live without X in my life, and I could still be reasonably happy. So that might not necessarily be an entirely applicable question for you. So the second question that I want to propose for us to help as a bit of a litmus test is the question of allocation. First question, question of attachment. Secondly, the question of allocation. Allocation. And the question of allocation is this, does your prioritization of this item interfere with your connection with God or with other people? Sometimes things become idols in our lives, not because we can't live without them, but because we allocate ever-increasing real estate to them in our hearts and lives. We spend more time or money or thought on them than any other reality. And we continually choose to prioritize it over other interests. And any time that it interferes with something that God might ask us to do, we choose that every time. So it interferes with our connection with God and quite often with other people. This can be any number of things. It can be our jobs. It can be in the area of sexual sin and choosing to cheat with your eyes and your internet connection. It can be working on your degree and pursuing scholastic success so that if something else was presented to you as an option that you would say no. It can be body image where we become obsessive and unhealthy. It can be an image or desire for the perfect family and have everybody believe that we have it all together. Anything good in your life has the capacity to become morphed into a counterfeit God. And so it's important to ask the question of priorities. What does that look like as it works itself out in our calendar, in our resources, and in every other way in which we organize and allocate ourselves? And that's why community is a valuable exercise. And one of our values is authentic community because when you place yourself in authentic community other people around you you can invite them into that process of asking these questions in your life and saying i can you help me because sometimes we get blind to these realities in our own lives so when you're in an authentic community you can say to other people you have full permission and i want to give you and invite you to speak into my life in these areas and say do you see anything in my life taking over more real estate than it need to needs to or should be or would make for healthy priorities in my life. And that is reciprocal as well. And so you can speak to your friends and say, listen, I, I wonder if my priorities are out of whack. Could you assist me in that process and speak into my life in that way? So we learn from Abraham's story that the best things in the world and good things that God has given to us can become idols in our hearts and in our lives. The other thing that we learn from Abraham's story is that the only way to deal with a counterfeit God is to walk up the mountain and to put it on the altar. Sometimes in evangelical subculture, in North America in particular, we are really, really good at giving lip service to things, but not actually following through on it. We say in the songs that we sing, oh, I would give it all to you, Jesus. I'm, I'm willing to do that. But then when Jesus asks us to do something, we say, no, no, I'm, I'm pretty busy this week, Jesus. Uh, could we put that off to a later date? Or when we feel a prompt from the Holy Spirit to be generous, we say, that would be great. I would love to put something towards the gift guide this, but I can't because that would mean other things. You know, I wouldn't be able to do this or do that or what have you. And so we learn from Abraham's story that God didn't just ask Abraham, are you willing to give up Isaac? I'm sure Abraham would have said, oh, yes, God, I surrender all, all to Jesus, I surrender, I surrender all. God said, no, I need you to take a three-day walk with me and with your son. And I want you to know and experience and walk with me in your actions, not just in your words. Because God wants Abraham not to just express a willingness in his heart to dethrone the idols that have taken him, but to actually walk through the experience of dethroning it." And many of you have been there. Many of you have been in a place where God has taken something from you that you thought was so precious and so valuable to you. And you realized, whether it was a dream for your life or your family or whatever it was, you realized that had become of primary influence in your life. And so, God has walked you through a process and an experience where that has been taken away or stripped away from you. Not just a willingness to give lip service to that, but God has said, like He did with Abraham, I need to actually have you go through the process of dealing with this as a counterfeit God. And many of you have been there. And sometimes, when we go through that process, we experience that there are some things that we can safely keep in our lives once they have been dethroned from that place of preeminence. And we can then safely put them in that number two, three, four, whatever spot in our priority list. But it takes more than just a verbal willingness to go there. Sometimes it takes actually a a physical or a life experience of walking through the mountains and putting it on the altar. And the scriptures use a particular phrase to describe what happens once a person has gone through that experience in their lives. The phrase that comes up again and again and again is the fear of the Lord, which doesn't mean that you're afraid of God, but it simply means that you have learned to put God first in your life. And so once you've placed those things on the altar, then you begin to experience and know what it is, the joy of the Lord and the fear of the Lord. Meaning that when God is first in your life, when you've laid down those other things, then there's a freedom that comes with that. There's a profound ability to know and hear God's voice in a different way than when you have other things taking that first place in your life and in your experience. So I'm going to ask the, Scott and the team, if they would come. And they're going to lead us through some songs that invite us to reflect on this in our lives. I'm going to invite you, uh, just as they lead us in this time of response in song, to ask those questions of attachment and that question of allocation and say, God, is there anything in my life that I have become inordinately attached to Or that I have given so much space in my life that it has begun to block out valuable and vital life-giving relationship with you and with other people? And maybe for you, this is a new question for you. Maybe you've never come to that place in your life where you've seen God say to you, I want you to give me your life. I want you to lay your hopes and dreams and your very life on the altar. And in exchange, I want to give you life that is abundant and free and rich. Turning your heart over to God in that way uses the language in the scriptures of salvation, that God is meeting you in that moment and offering you something that you cannot earn yourself. It's by grace that you're saved through faith. It's a gift of God not of anything that you do, lest anyone should boast. Maybe God this morning is coming to you and saying, you know what, you've never made that transaction. I want to invite you in this place this morning to do that. We have prayer teams that will be available for you over at the side and over at the back. And they can lead you through that process of saying, what does it mean to lay my life down and invite God into that place of prominence, that first place in my life? Maybe as you think about it and as the team leads us in song, maybe another thing comes into your mind where you think, you know what, I have placed my family in an inordinately high matrix in my life, in an unhealthy way that is choking my relationship with God. Maybe you need to say, God, I repent of that this morning. Which in the language of the scriptures means I'm going to walk in a different direction. In James chapter five, it says, therefore confess your sins to one another and find forgiveness and freedom and healing in that. And so you may wanna go to the prayer table and have someone pray with you and say, God's just been speaking to me about a particular area in my heart this morning that I need to give to him in a fresh way. Would you pray with me that I have the courage and the wisdom to do that? Maybe you wanna go to the prayer tables and celebrate with the team and say, you know what, God has been so good to me and God has just been pouring his grace out into my life time and time again. And this has been, I just want to celebrate and say thank you with somebody. Maybe you've got a particular need in your life that you want to ask for, something or someone that you want to pray for and want someone to walk and journey with you in that. Just invite you to do that as the team leads us in a time of reflection in song. Just allow God to speak to you by his spirit about those things in your life.